It's a pleasure to have the man himself, Cliffy Huntington, on The Antidote for a talk about Huntington's. Thanks for coming, Cliffy. What's up, man? Thank you. Very, very happy to be here, man. Something I do get confused about is that sometimes you'll see the band referred to as Huntington's. Other times people say the Huntington's. So you mm-hmm. got to clarify this. Which one is it? It's just like the Ramones. There's no the as far as in our logo or anything. It's just Huntington's. Now, uh, it didn't start off that way. It started out as the Huntington's. But by the time of the second record, it was just Huntington's with no the. And it's been that way ever since. But we've long since stopped correcting people and it, it's we've long since thinking it matters so it's 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 all fine it doesn't matter how you do it but i will say the first t is silent it's a huntington it's just like huntington beach california oh man i always thought it was huntington's okay yeah like not it's not like huntington's it's your first t is silent you just it's huntington's so now that we've got that all clarified we got to talk about the band because huntington's has a long history According to Wikipedia, it all began in 93. So you got to tell us, where did the band idea come from? Well, uh, the starting in 93 was really nothing more than me meeting this kid and he had recording equipment, you know, like a little Tascam tape machine. Oh, my. And I just, you know, I wanted to record my songs because I had written tons of songs and I just wanted to record them and everything. And he was agreeable to that. And it just really started with me driving an hour away to his house and sitting around recording my demos with him and him being an active participant in that and somebody I could bounce ideas off and everything like that. Over time, I just really desired to put a band together and I just immediately thought of him because he he was a great working partner. He was a sweet kid. He was a nice, nice, just a nice kid. It's Mike, who's the singer in the Huntington's. He was 17, I think, and I was like 23. And I had known him from years before. I had known him since he was like 12 or 13 from our Bible summer camp we went to. There was a girl that lived near him that I really liked a lot, and I would go and try to be able to see her and be around her. She didn't like me back. She was just friends, but I would spend a lot of time with her. (laughs) You were just hoping. Uh, Exactly. It's exactly right. About a year later, we actually formally decided to start a band, and we had a different name. And I was the singer and the sole songwriter. And then over time, it just kind of like, we were always looking for a sound. We always kept feeling like the stuff I was writing, it was cool, but it, it really just wasn't like, you know. Anyway, so this one day, Mike just came to practice and he just had this song called Rock and Roll Girl. And he was like, hey, I want to show you this song. And so he just played it and it was like, we were all like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. And I loved it so much. That was real, super easy to play. It was just three chords in a row, the same thing, row round and round and round, going from mute to not mute. Just the melody and the vibe, the feeling that it gave us was so strong and so good that we were like, this is it. This is fantastic. I made us play the song five times in a row. He had the moon, had my one mic, and so he was singing it. So he had the mic. Like, I just got the overall vibe of the chorus, and I just started shouting the chorus back to him without a mic. Just, she's my rock and roll girl. You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> sure. That's where that big, loud, high backer vocal came from is because we didn't have another mic and I was just trying to be heard over our volume, over our noise. So it was just it was just fun and we were really excited and we were like, oh my gosh, we got to write 10 more of these. So we threw away every song we had up until that point. Literally, they were gone overnight. And within the next week or two, we had 10 more just like that. And we just kind of kept going from there. Um, the songs came relatively easy. Well, up to a certain point, we had some. We have some we thought were really, really, really good, but we didn't think we had enough. So, there was a lot of really great songs on that first album for what we were going for. We weren't professional, 
in any way stretch of the imagination, but it was definitely a foundation for what we started the band. And, and that was it. So like, um, 95, we had found our sound and, uh, we had changed our name, uh, but we weren't the Huntington's yet. And then we had sent these demos uh, to our record company. We were already signed because we were signed off the strength of my little demos that I had made with my material that we had done. But anyway, we had made these demos of this new stuff and we sent them to the record company and they were like, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, well, well, let's get you guys in the studio. And and, and then we, we decided we needed to change our name again. And so we just all sat around kind of spitballing ideas back together on what's, what's called a band. Uh, at one point, we made a list of five band names. And back then, we were very into um, the uh, – we thought it was very punk rock for the presentation of the band to not be like the sound of the band. Now, that's very, very short-sighted and very, very, very unprofessional. But we thought that was funny and cool because we didn't know any better. So we came up with the Huntington's. It was a name of a housing development near where our drummer lived. And um, we just thought that the Huntington's sounded like some traveling gospel band, like the Hemp Hills or, or the Oak Ridge Boys or something like that. That's what we fashioned it sounded like. If you've seen the actual album or Sweet 16 album, then you'll know that the pictures inside, we look like we're the Beatles or something like that. <laughs> you know, but we're actually... Because we, we're like, we're holding these old time instruments and we've got like suit jackets on and all this kind of stuff. But that's not at all what, what the actual records sound like. So we thought it was really funny and awesome to do that. But we were wrong. Of course, we quickly, over the next little while, we kind of came to terms with proper presentation. We dropped the the and kind of went, by the time we got to high school rock, we had kind of had a look. And then after that, we, we canned the high school jackets that we were using for high school rock and we just went like all the other bands that we love so much and just went to the biker leather jackets. And from there, it's been, it's been that ever since. Um, and it's just like, we, but we, you know, we just kept growing over the years and becoming more professional until we were pretty much a machine. And it's kind of been like that ever since. Getting rid of the matching suits was probably a really good idea because music style wise, you were following in the footsteps of Ramones. Yeah. Why was their style important to you? Um, it didn't start with the Ramones. My brother introduced me to the Ramones in the eighties and I thought it was dumb because it was my older brother bringing them to me and I didn't want to hear anything my older brother wanted to listen to. And I was very steeped <laughs> in like the headbanger stuff of the eighties. Very, very, very steeped in everything from like the lighter hair bands to the more thrashy bands like Metallica and Overkill and Flotsam and Jetsam and all that stuff. I mean, that was my music. And, and there was some Christian stuff I really liked during this time, too. I was very into anything to do with Mike Knott, Mike Rowe from the 77s. Um, my first punk rock album I ever got in my life was the Lifesavers um, album, their second album called um, Dream Life. Oh, yeah. I had a cassette from Refuge Records, yeah. And then after that, I got the Alter Boys' first album. And then I got the Undercover's first album. You know, remember those old, like, the Christian scene had their own version of, like, the Columbia Record Tape Club. It was, like, the epic, you know, you would get, like, the magazine in your house. You know, Word Records would send routinely every few times a year. I would get, like, a little magazine of all the music, and I could join the Christian Tape Club thing. You know what I mean? Whatever it was called. They, there was a section in there that was called New Music. It was all, like, what was happening in the kids' realm of the day. It wasn't Amy Grant or... or Michael W. Smith or anything like that. It was 77s and Undercover and Res Band and various things like that. And so I was, I really, really got into that music from that. And I literally, to me, like that stuff really shaped me even more than like the headbanger music did because it was like something that I had found all on my own. You know, I wasn't directed to it. I was never something where my family made me listen to Christian music because, you know, that was 
palatable to them. And it was just literally something I just found on my own people that I, you know, I gravitated towards church and things like that. That was like, you know, something I always, I was raised in it. And so I just didn't feel comfortable running around with a bunch of hoodlums. You know, I was kind of a loner kid and I just found this music and I just totally dove into it. And so, you know, that stuff shaped me a lot. But when the Ramones came in, like that was my brother. And by that point, I'm all into like, you know, Rat and all the various headbanger stuff of the 80s, Kiss and whatnot. Then Green Day hit. Now, I found out about Green Day because one of those demos that I had made, somebody said, oh, that kind of sounds like Green Day. And I didn't know who that was. So I went to like my local record store and they had the um, the first two albums by them, the 38 Slappy Smooth, whatever. And then the Kerplunk after that, they had those two albums on cassette. And I bought both of those because I was like, well, this band supposedly sounds like me. Let's see what this sounds like. And I was listening to that and I was just like, oh, this is pretty cool. But it didn't like sound like my music to me. And then their major label album comes out and it was just like, oh my gosh. Now that was really good. That major label Green Day album to me just felt like all that, the feel good 80s hard rock that I listened to, but just without guitar solos. And so I really gravitated to that. And I was really, really, really got into that. And then I was just starting to go to record stores all the time and looking at tapes and CDs and records and stuff. You know, that was back before there was any of the way you listen to music now. So back then, if you remember, we would we would either hear about a band or more often than not, we would just go to a record store and we would look at something and it would look like it was cool. Exactly. But we, th- th- there wasn't even listening stations in record stores. You would buy things just based on because you thought the band looked cool and that was it. <laughs> um, and so... So anyway, I was I saw something called Screeching Weasel, and I was like, what the heck is this? And I turned it over, and there was Mike Durrant, the bass player from Green Day on it. I was like, oh my gosh. So then I bought that. It was Screeching Weasel's last album at the time. Um, I would just loved that. I thought it was so cool. Uh, from the um, Screeching Weasel, I would look in the special thanks, and I would see other bands that they would think, and then I would want to go try to get those other bands. And one of those bands was called The Queers. Now, at the time, I was like, it's just a little embarrassing buying something called the queers. But I remember I went to, to and uh, it was a, uh, there was one of their albums and it had the little cat all over it. And one of um, one of the little cat had a little t-shirt and said Ramones on it. So I was like, okay, cool. So anytime I would hear about these bands or read about them, they were always constantly talking about the Ramones and how it's the best band in the world and whatever, whatever, whatever. So I just kind of went back and I checked that out again. Now, by this time I'm very, into that sound and I can recognize it and I see it now the Ramones is far earlier and it's far more cool actually in a lot of ways but it's a lot more stripped down and it's a lot less bombastic and everything Mike and I both we were really getting all this kind of stuff at the same time and so when we when we found our sound and everything we went from there the first thing we were doing is we weren't trying to be the Ramones yet we were just being Green Day Screeching Weasel and a little bit of the Queers and that's, that was it <laughs> um, we started just getting super crazy both of us just started getting really, really, really into the Ramones. As we kept becoming a more professional band, you know, I learned about got to play all downstrokes and all the different stuff, like how you play guitar, how, how you hold the guitar, how you stand, you know, how to write songs like that. And all this kind of stuff, it just kept kind of growing from there. At one point, without ever saying it, we just decided that we were going to be the most Ramones band of the Ramones core scene that had ever been. Even though that was not an agreement, that's not something we talked about out loud to each other, but it was just something that we just kept gravitating to. And we became the most Ramones band of the entire Ramones core scene, of which I guess we probably still are. I have to tell you a story. At the radio station, one of the programmers there is just a diehard Ramones fan. 
And right. I played Huntington's for her. And she says, but they're better than Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it could have been, might have been the file of the Ramones album. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Here's something else we should talk about. The sound of Huntington's and Ramones were so close that really sometimes I found it hard to pick out Huntington's original tracks versus the covers. Like, did you ever right. have fans questioning why not use your own music only? Well, we we um, we were not a Ramones cover band. It's funny because we've recorded like I don't know, like forty Ramones cover songs over the years. I think like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've got like over a hundred of our originals. You got to think back to in that Ramones core scene. It was a very specific thing that bands would go and record Ramones songs. It was just part of being in the, part of that scene. Like so, Screeching Weasel, the Queers, Beating Termites, Mr. T Experience. They did one too. Uh, um, at least 10 to 15, maybe more, 20 bands. I mean, all these different bands, they would record entire Ramones albums from wow. start to finish. And so what we set out to delineate ourselves from them to make ourselves special, anyway, I'll get to why we did a second one. But the first one that we did, we were like, okay, we're not going to record an entire album of Ramones songs. We're going to go and, and we're going to basically make our own compilation. And our first album was like, okay, everything has to be from the first four albums, but it's got. but we're going to do various songs from all those first four albums. So it was like, I got to choose five songs, Mikey got to choose five songs, and the other Mikey got to choose five songs. And we couldn't argue with what we chose, whatever we chose, we recorded and we did, and that was it. We just did it like a garage band. I mean, it was so junior league, we didn't even think at the time anything like, oh, you change your chord with the kick drum, like you lock in with the drummer, mm-hmm. you know? And we would get lost all the time because we didn't have that thought process. We were, you know, we, we just kind of felt it without paying attention or really realizing what it is you're connecting to. So then later on, when we became a professional band, we were like, man, that was really embarrassing. Let's do it again, but do it right this time. And so this time we did File Under Ramones. We recorded it for $1,000. We recorded it in two days, mixed it in two days. You know, this time we, we chose songs over their entire career. So it's different in the way that other bands did it in the sense that we didn't just take one album and cover it. We made a list of Ramon songs and then made an album of that. So it's almost like you put your own favorite Ramones comp that you could ever put together, but then you make everything have the same production values. It, it, was, it was just fun to do for us. Because, you know, part of being in a band is you want to feel like another band that you love. So for us... We just wanted to feel like those bands. We wanted to feel like we were part of that scene. Really, we were these nobodies from Delaware, and these other bands didn't know who we were. But we just wanted to feel like, well, we could do it better than them. So we did that, and uh, you know, we didn't concentrate on playing all those songs live. Like our live sets, a huge majority of them were our own songs, and then, of course, our albums had our own songs on them. It's not like the Ramones wrote our songs. We have melodic sensibilities that are more than just the Ramones, you know I mean? We've, absolutely. you know, there's, there's more going on there. There's guitar solos that we play ourselves, all this different stuff. There's a lot more going on than just Ramones stuff, but uh, you know, we're definitely not just a Ramones clone, by any stretch of the imagination, but we certainly love them and we strive our best just to write really awesome songs. We write songs that just make us want to move and that make us feel good and make us feel like this is good and powerful and this is worth doing. So yeah, did we ever have anybody say, why don't you write your own songs? No, because we wrote our own songs. You know, back on the scene back then, it was just a thing that bands did who came from that. And so we were just part of doing what everybody else did, you know? 
I want to take this conversation back to something you brought up earlier, the Christian music scene. Huntington's never really took on a label as being a Christian band. Were you good with that? Well, yeah. I mean, well, look, in Christian music, uh, first of all, now, obviously, we were very much in that scene. You know, we were signed to Christian labels. Our albums were were available in Christian bookstores before they were started to get available in, in general market stores. Um, so we, we certainly came from that. You know, our history of growing up is steeped in all that stuff. I will simply say that none of us ever felt like we had a quote-unquote calling from God to play music. We played music because we wanted to play music, because it's what we wanted to do. We made no bones about it. It was simply the same thing as somebody who wants to play baseball. We just played music because we had to, because we wanted to, because it made us feel good. It was about us. It wasn't about God. It wasn't about proselytizing. It wasn't about leading people to Jesus. It wasn't about not being those things. I didn't purposely stay away from any of that stuff. But it's just the band itself. I never wanted to feel like I was selling the gospel, right? I never wanted to do feel like I was doing something fake, i.e., have a music ministry when you didn't feel called to that. Because then all you're really doing, in my view, is doing something to make money under the guise of Christendom when that's not what it's about for you for real. So then it's fake. And everybody can see that a million miles away. There's only so many res bands out there. And most everything that you see in the Christian music scene is fake. Or at least back then. I mean, once we started touring, we'd be around these bands we weren't even singing about God or doing any of that stuff. And yet we were the ones that were not hooking up with girls on tour and we weren't drinking and smoking and all this kind of stuff. And all those other bands were doing all that stuff. Well, we've certainly made our mistakes and made our bad choices and just like anybody else, but we were just like the real deal. You know, we were just guys in a band and the majority of us were Christians and we enjoyed having people in the band that were Christians because it's always good in a band setting to be with around people of like mind. But nobody that was ever in our band, to my knowledge, ever felt any calling to go and play rock music for God. I don't know. It just never sat well to me, the idea, this idea of selling the gospel. Because the gospel is free. And the excuse is always, well, you know, we got we to gotta be able to, we got to have money. We got to make a living too. Okay, well, you know what? If it's going to be for Jesus, then you need to let him support you or let the church support you. Or you need to maybe be doing it when you're young and you don't have to have bills. Because once real life comes in and you've got to start making money, then maybe you need to not be playing music for Jesus. Got it. That's kind of been my view the whole time, and that's why we didn't do it. I'm going to take it back to the music. So the year 2005 came around, and Huntington's recorded what was, I guess everybody considered at that point, was going to be your final album, Pull the Plug. The title gave a lot away with that. A purposeful double meaning? Yes. So that was Mike and our other guitarist, Josh. They just they did a Cars cover and they did a Beach Boys cover. And the rest of them were just covers of our own material. They're just acoustic versions of it. So this was, if you remember back then, you know, MTV Unplugged and all that stuff was happening throughout the 90s. And, and that was still on fresh on people's minds and stuff like that by this point. So Mike and Josh just got the idea to do that. And uh, they just went and recorded it real quick. Not very well. I'd love to do something like that again and do it properly where there's actually like acoustic drums, acoustic bass and everything's warm tones and recorded properly. That'd be killer. It's fun to listen to. I've never had anybody complain about it. They recorded it, sent it to me. I mastered it. And then we made some CDRs out of it. That was it. That wasn't really a real album. Um, That was something that we just did on a LARP because we were going to Cornerstone to play our final show. 
I had been out of the band for like four years. Wow. And then, um, and the band asked me to come back for the final couple shows. And I did. So I was living in, I was living in Portland, Oregon. I had another band at the time and I just, I paid my own way out, rehearsed with them. It was like old times. It was awesome. You know, uh, we had gone through some fighting and some negative stuff. So it was nice to put all that behind us and just enjoy each other's company again. It was really cool. So we played a show in Philadelphia and then we drove out to um, Cornerstone and played that. We were the, I think we were the biggest show of that festival that year. And uh, it was just, it was really fun. It was bittersweet, obviously. Some people cried while we were playing and stuff and, and everything. But we had a really good time. And, and then Cornerstone was over and that was it. We all went our separate ways. And, so even though you said that the band stopped, and of course you did stop recording, you still kept playing a few dates here and there. I mean, I saw Huntington's yeah. play in 2016. So you never wanted to give up the shows. That's right. We stopped, and then two years later we had we decided, uh, you know what, man, we missed this. Let's just get together every once in a while, maybe once or twice a year just for the fun of it. And um, if a cool opportunity comes by or we just miss it, we feel like doing it, we can. It doesn't have to be a big deal. We can all have lives and jobs and our wives and families and none of it gets in the way. You know, we're not going to try to tour. We're not going to try to do anything. We're just going to play the old songs and get together and have fun every once in a while. So that's what we did. We played in 2007. And then we played again in 8. In 2009, we actually recorded a few songs. And we we put together a big benefit show because our drummer, uh, his wife, uh, got brain cancer. And we put together this benefit show to raise money for them. So the whole point was to get them back on their feet. It wasn't to pay for medical bills. So we raised $6,000. Every dime of it went to Mike and they went and paid off a bunch of bills. And while we were doing that, we recorded three new songs, put together some other stuff that wasn't on any other regular albums, kind of like non-album tracks and put it together as an album called Punk Sounds. And that came out. Um, That was in 2009. You know, then we didn't do anything for a couple of years. And then we then we would get together again. We'd get an opportunity to play with Screeching Weasel. So we went and did that. We got an opportunity to play with Riverdale. So we went and did that. And then in 2015, another guy named Brian Hardy started coming around. And so um, then uh, Brian Hardy, was, who was really cool. And then at one point, he said something about he was, he was putting together a festival, a big punk rock show. Oh, and then we said, well, why aren't we playing it? He was like, oh, I'd love to have you guys play. Yeah. So we put together this all day show. And we played that. We just had a lot of fun. And from there, we were like, you know what? Instead of once or twice every year or two, maybe we can kick this up to like three to 10 times a year. So the first year we played three times. Next year, we got a chance to play a music festival. We went out and played that music festival, played shows all the way there and back, did another weekend where we went up to the uh, Northeast to play up there and came back. And so that, that year we played six times. And then the year after that, we played 10 times. And it just kind of grew from there. We were just having fun. Uh, so then we got Chris in the band. He started playing drums with us and every year he would be like, guys, we really should, we should really do an album. We were just always like, yeah, okay, whatever. But over the years, he just kind of wore us down. And then we started getting really interested in ourselves and, and then we were just like, okay, well, if we can write songs and have it really be as good, at least as good of caliber as what we had done before, then we would go ahead and, and do another album. We started kind of getting into it and then we were like, whoa this is really, really, really good. It's super fun. This stuff kind of <laughs> seems better than what we had ever done before. Because, I mean, I had been in 
you know, Mike had been playing music for years and I had, I had really stretched my wings by playing other different stuff. I'd really rock and rolly kind of band and just really kind of expanded my horizons as far as guitar and writing and, and arranging and everything like that. And so we all got back together and we all, this, it wasn't just like one guy writing everything. It was all of us coming in to do it. And it was just, it was just super fun. I mean, you've heard the results. It turned out really well. So, Well, give us the title of the new album. All right, the new album's called Muerto Carcel or Rock and Roll. It means Dead Jail or Rock and Roll. So the Get Lost and Plastic Surgery albums, those are not the original titles of the albums. Get Lost was, was originally going to be called Lost, Lonely, and Vicious. We got that from an old movie uh, from the 50s. And then um, Plastic Surgery was originally going to be called Dead Jail or Rock and Roll. Oh. And, and the record company would not let us use either one of those titles. They just thought they would be too hard to sell those, you know, in the in the whole bookstores and all that kind of stuff so to the nail said no so then we kind of came up to all alternates we uh, we changed lost lonely vicious to get lost and then you know the albums were put out a year apart even though they were recorded at the same time so i came up with the title for plastic surgery it was we were just kind of really kind of not sure what to call it and at one point i just said i just came up with that and where everyone was like yeah so when we were doing this album we were kind of thinking of what we were going to call it and i just said well what do you think about calling it the Dead Jailer Rock and Roll? We can finally use that title. And then Mike then got the idea to turn, change that into Spanish, like Adios Amigos, the final Ramones album. <laughs> and uh, it just kind of it just it just went from there. And um, we really felt like now when I listen to the album title, it's just cool. It just belongs with that music. All of it goes. It just really fits very well together. I'm very very proud of what we've done and what we've got. I think it's great. You got to be honest with me, Cliffy. Are you yeah. actually fluent in Spanish? No. No. <laughs> I no, wondered. No. Well, we had German, too. You know, we've got a song called Dies Out on uh, High School Rock. And um, Dies Out just means this sucks. It's not like necessarily how a German would say this sucks. We literally went to like one of those translators and we typed in this. And then we typed in sucks. And, you know, and so one word at a time, it came back. That doesn't mean that that's an actual phrase that Germans would really use. But that's, we thought that was very Ramonesy to do. So we did that. And this was nothing but more than wanting to cop on the Ramones audio speakers. And it was Mike's idea to do that. And we all saw it. And it just kind of one of those things where it clicks. It looks really cool. But no, no, no. Heck no. None of us speak Spanish at all. This album is cool because it's not a clone of your past. I mean, this is a no. whole new baby. You know, the music yes. has a much harder tone. Well, what we basically did is, uh, what I say we did is we created an all-new template while still somehow sounding like the same band. So basically all it is is we write songs, but we're willing to do more with the guitar now. I don't play the way I used to. I do a lot of open chording. I do a lot of like in fingering. Uh, the way I finger my stuff is is a lot more going on and brings a certain depth to it. And we, we, we let Josh really flex his muscles more on lead solos. I got plenty of lead solos too, but he's just, to me, he's the unsung hero on the album. The things he did on lead guitar throughout this album are just phenomenal. You know, and Mike is just such a great writer, but like all of us, all of us together. And you know, and what's even the drums, man, Chris on the, his drums are, he's just like, it's like he's a musician. He's not just keeping a beat. To me, his drums actually sing and, they, and it all goes together really wonderfully well. And But yes, we did not go back and redo High School Rock. We didn't redo Get Lost. We had been playing songs for the last several years. We had been playing predominantly 
uh, like a lot of get lost kind of that. And, and our live shows kind of had a toughness about them. You know, we had a certain power, a toughness about everything. And so when we were writing songs for this, we were really thinking in terms of the Mondo Bizarro album by, by the Ramones and also um, Adios Amigos by the Ramones. We were thinking about those songs and the way they, the way those songs together are. We really like that stuff. Some people don't, but we really do. And so like, that was my thought process of like, I wanted to capture a lot of that vibe when I, when I was writing. And plus my guitar playing has basically become like an amalgam, a mixture of Johnny Ramone um, and Angus Young and then Kiss. Those three kind of together really have come together to really bring my style where it is now. That's throughout the album like that. There's several songs on there I wrote by myself and then Mike would, well, I wrote them musically and then Mike thought of the melody and the lyrics and everything, which always ties everything together so wonderfully well. I mean, that's more important than the music anyway. So, but we're all wrote on this and we all just had fun and, and it was just, it was exciting. You know, it was almost like we were a brand new band and we had that hunger because it had been so long. We weren't trying to recapture anything. We were just really hungry and felt really excited by what we were doing. This is hilarious because you're talking Ramones, Guns N' Roses. Yeah. You're neglecting to mention that you bring in John Denver yes. on Things Are Gonna Get Better. I mean, like, what That's were right. you thinking? <laughs> well, that, that was Mike's idea. Mike's idea was to just go into that. He thought it blended really well with, with it. and just It felt like a really good bridge. You know, lift John Denver's bridge, put make it the bridge in one of our songs. I think it's wonderful. I mean, I think it works great. And I love it. I'm glad we did it. Yeah. But, you know, there, there is a Guns N' Roses influence on this album, but not in the songwriting. The Guns N' Roses influence is, is in the way it was recorded. So for this album, for the first time ever, well, for the first time since we first started, we did not use a click track. And just like all the other albums, we did not do any kind of pitch correction at all. So we've never used any kind of pitch correction at all in the vocals. It's always been our real voice. But on all of our albums, except the first two, we used a click track on all of them. So it's, it's that beat to make your meter perfect. You have to stick yeah. But We just specifically decided to not do that because we wanted the more live feel. And we wanted that we had several songs that kind of purposefully slowed down at the very end. And we didn't want a click track messing that up because it would. And so uh, the Guns N' Roses, um, their, their debut album, when they recorded that, both guitarists, they'll go into guitar solos right on their rhythm tracks. So if you listen to it with headphones, you'll get some of the solos are right up the middle, like you know, they're overdubbed and they're right up the middle. But a lot of the solos are like right in with the rhythm tracks. You'll have a solo completely on the left speaker with the rhythm in the right or the vice versa, you know. So we decided to do the majority of our solos that way on this album. And also, this was the first album where me and Josh, the other guitarist, we weren't invested in playing the same thing. In fact, we really reveled in playing different things you know, even muting differently from each other and different things like that, which really expanded and widened out the album. Just this dirty, dark rock and roll thing that, you know, the guitars are their own animal that just, that are just running, you know? There's very little overdubbing on the album. There's no keyboard, there's no tambourine, there's no hand claps, there's no nothing. It's just guitar, guitar, bass, vocal, drum, nothing else on every song. Huntington's made it easy on yourselves for part of the recording because you stole the lyrics for Say Hi to Your Mom. We did. So uh, it's still, though, you still got to have a melody and you, got, you still got to. But yes, those. So we've had three songs now about the movie Back to the Future. Three and songs? Oh, I could think of yes. 1985, but what else was there? 
uh, all on our Songs in the Key View album, there is a really wonderful song on there called um, Enchantment Under the Sea. And that is uh, all about when Marty goes to the dance. Oh, you know, okay. So that's... He played yeah, in the band. That's correct. That was the Enchantment Under the Sea was written when you when they went into the dance. That was the name of the dance, and that was that was written on the wall. That's what that's all, the whole song is about. That so then this was a trilogy because you know that movie's a trilogy, so we had to make a trilogy. Of course, our trilogy is only about the first Back to the Future because the other Back to the Futures are not anywhere near as good. So this is only about the first one. So the first one is Marty. The second one is Marty's dad, and this one is Biff. This one comes from the uh, standpoint of Biff. Literally, a lot of the words are directly lifted from the movie. Okay, honestly, <laughs> how many times have you seen Back to the Future? I've seen it three or four times. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say you were an obsessed fan. No, 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 no. So, uh, so the reason any of the Back to the Future stuff even started was because our original drummer, Mikey, he looked a lot like Michael J. Fox. He was about the same height. He just looked a lot like him and he really identified with him and he would always kind of clown around and talk about Back to the Future. Back to the Future is a big, super, super important movie to him. So when we were doing, when we were writing the songs that were going to eventually be on High School Rock, so we would practice and at some point we would take a break and we would all go to like a convenience store and buy sodas and whatnot. And this one time, but I just elected to stay back. And so they went, when they came back, I had 1985 completely written from beginning to end, um, the music. <laughs> and um, I think it was the next week Mike came back and he had the framework for what to do with the vocals and and that it was going to be about Back to the Future thinking about Mike or our drummer his name's Mikey too so it was two mics and a cliff so uh, so that's really all it was and you know now of course since then you know we we like Back to the Future obviously but it's it's not something that like I don't own the movies or anything you know and I don't know if Mike does we don't have all kinds of Back to the Future paraphernalia we don't have any of that stuff. It's just, just something to write a songs about, man. It was a cool movie. We liked it. And the harshest truth is that you don't have the DeLorean either. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a song called Too Old to Care that says, On the couch at 9.30, can't keep my eyes open anymore. Got no interest in the TV. Might be new, but I've seen it all before. Are you really telling us that age is taking its toll? Well, it's it's more of we don't care about being cool. You know what I mean? Like being cool and keeping up with the Joneses and knowing what's hip and all that kind of stuff has lost its taste to us. And so now we're just who we are and we're happy to be who we are. We make no bones about who we are. We don't try to hide who we are. It's all good. It's kind of like you get to a place in maturity where you're comfortable in your own skin. You're happy with who you are, and that's it. That's what that song's about. I got to bring up one last song from the album, and okay. it's probably the most out-and-out -out rock song on the album. Thank God for the bomb. What's the story behind the song? Well, that song is just about us as a band, and it's about... You know, we're to this place, we get to do what we want when we want. And, you know, the end always seems like, you know, the end could always be any minute. You know what I mean? But we're just, we're just living it and we're enjoying it. We're having fun. Um, we don't see an end in sight, but we know the end is, is near simply because of our age. You know, it's literally about us and how 
we view the band and how we view our fans and how we appreciate our fans and we don't make any bones about who we are. We, we wear influences on our sleeve and we don't care. You know what I mean? It's all that stuff. So that's really it. Well, Cliffy, you appreciate your fans. I appreciate having you here on The Antidote. Thanks for coming and sharing about Huntington's. Thank you, and I hope uh, people listening to this will take some time to check out the album Muerto Carcelo Rock and Roll. It's a new Huntington's album. It came out January 31st. It's available cassette, CD, vinyl, um, and of course it's available on every digital platform in the world. I do hope you check it out. We're awfully proud of it. So, cool. Thank you, sir. <laughs>